On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. You gotta find a way to not really forget the memories, but know how to deal with them. On the trolley side, just a little bit of fire left. Like a path, they clear a path. I say, holy cow, they made a path for us. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, stories from the road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and joining me on the podcast tonight is former Deputy Bridget. Uh, Bridget spent four and a half years in law enforcement. Uh, She was a narcotics officer and a member of the SWAT team, and she took an interesting career turn. So Bridget, without saying too much, much more, I'll turn the mic over to you and let you share your story from the road. Thank you, Phil. Um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a former deputy sheriff, proudly, and um, I was in Florida, and I'm now in Texas. I've actually lived kind of all over the South. I'm from Louisiana, went to the University of Florida for college. The week after I graduated college with an environmental horticulture degree, and that's kind of a long story, I went to the police academy the next week, I think, and then um, worked for Alachua County in Florida, which I, you know, it's where Gainesville, Gainesville sits, uh, University of Florida, which is Gainesville sits inside of Alachua County. And I did that for four and a half years. Uh, I started out in patrol like everybody does, and then uh, quickly went into the undercover narcotics unit and joke and say I bought crack for a living for three years. Um, but I, I did buy a lot of crack and maybe we would do pills and other investigations. Uh, we were called the Narcotics and Organized Crime Unit. We didn't really do much organized crime other than you know, the goal is when you always, you know, buy a flip, a, you want to arrest a street dealer, flip a street dealer to go up the chain because, you know, there's this whole war on drugs thing. And so it would kind of, we would get every once in a while, go up the chain or be able to hand a case off to like federal officers to try and ultimately get to the supplier. But we didn't really do it. It's not like we were dealing with the mob in the terms of organized crime. But um, anyway, so 
and at the same time I was on SWAT team, I was the only female member of SWAT, the only female member they'd ever had. They have not had another female since then. Although the captain who was over all of that at the time when they, they ultimately made the, made the team put me on because there was no reason for them to not put me on. I'd passed the trial just like everybody else did. He is now sheriff at that county. And so I think that if they ever had a chance to get another female, it would be with him. But because I was on SWAT team, uh, it was the same lieutenants, the same sergeants, the team leaders on SWAT were the, my sergeants in uh, the narcotics unit. I quit law enforcement because um, of all the things you could imagine, that would be like being the only female member of a SWAT team. Um, you know, absent, like I didn't get explicit. Um, it wasn't like explicit sexual harassment. It wasn't like explicit, like do this or else. Um, but and what I am now, now I'm an attorney. So what I know and, and what a lot of people know as they feel it is it's not, it doesn't have to be the explicit statements. It can be a lot of other things that come together to put, to, to support a, like that's a, this is a harassing environment. This is a discriminatory environment and you know, a retaliation, um, hostile work environment, all that. So I became a lawyer and, um, I, you know, I, I chose, I like, I like to say I chose law enforcement. I don't, it took me a long time to feel like I was choosing being an attorney because I went into law, law enforcement thinking I was going to do it for the rest of my life. I had plans of maybe going to feds someday. And then my experiences at the sheriff's office tainted that really bad and uh, or, or severely and realized because I had also worked with some federal investigators when, the, when I was in the narcotics unit, I realized, and, and no disrespect to anybody in the feds, but just realize that the egos I was dealing with, with the guys at the sheriff's office were just going to be bigger egos. The higher up you went, whether it was a state like the Florida department of law enforcement or anybody's state equivalent of that, or FBI, DEA, something like that. So decided that I just don't want to keep fighting that battle for the rest of my life. So I went to quit and went to law school and, and kind of feel like I got some good experience. I did civil litigation and, and, you know, got cases to trial for many years. Um, but I hated it. I really hated it. And then about four years ago decided, you know, screw this life is too short. I'm a firm believer that it's never too late to try anything or start anything. And so left the law firm life, even though I was so mad when I left law enforcement, I still knew I wanted to do something, either wanted to be involved in law enforcement somehow, or definitely want to be able to help law enforcement somehow. And but it took me a while to figure that out because I knew I never wanted to be a cop again. Like that, I, that was, that ship had sailed. But anyway, fast forward to four years ago, I thought, well, maybe I can help officers with like their wellness because I know that the job or any, really any first responder is that the job ultimately gets to you no matter what. Um, if it hasn't yet, it's just a matter of time. And it, and, it's, and it takes proactive effort to balance that out or to counteract that. Um, I like to say, I said all the time, you can't change what the job is or what the, the nature of the job or, or, you know, the evil that you encounter on the job, you can't change that, but you can change how you react to it or what you can do to balance out your life and find happiness and, and, and feel okay about it. But um, anyway, so Kate, fast forward to four years ago, I left the law firm life. I decided I want to do something to help law enforcement. I also have a wellness business called protective wellness, which I've kind of been ignoring for a couple of years because as I started to try and get that off the ground, telling my story and going on podcasts like this, I would talk about my story and I am an attorney and people started reaching out to me saying, Hey, I'm dealing with the same things. Can you help me? And so really my law firm practice, which is called Lady Law Shield, evolved 
And that's a, is I knew I wanted to help as a lawyer somehow, but I just didn't know what that meant because I really don't care much about litigation. And even having spent so many years in cases that lead to litigation, I just don't believe in a lawsuit being the answer all the time. But also because of what I've learned as an attorney is now I know all the ways that I can help, all the ways that I can guide people, all the ways can help people understand what their rights are and what their options are before you even, way before you ever get to a lawsuit. And of course, I know what you need for a lawsuit. I know filing a case. I know everything you need to build a case. I know how to do that. So, I mean, that leads me to where I am. I have Lady Law Shield and I help clients across the country, um, primarily all law enforcement, although I think all the same issues apply. And so I always say it's law enforcement and first responders that because we all face the same hardships on the job, I'm sure. And I know for a fact that we're all facing the same issues within our departments and because it's all the same personalities. So I help people figure out what to do because when I was in that position, I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't know who I could trust. I, you know, I would get in, in at least like definitely one big internal affairs investigation. And then I think there was one, maybe two other small ones where like toward the end, I was like, just please leave me alone. Please stop investigating me. Please stop putting a letter in my file. Please stop punishing me somehow just for showing up. And I know that feeling and I know what it feels like. And so now my practice starts with, I think what I know, I know what you need is you want I, there's three things I tell clients all the time. You're not crazy. This is definitely illegal. And here's the plan. And I do that even if you signed up with me and I've had clients, I have another client I signed up in January of this year and she'll regularly call me or text me and say, Bridget, but am I crazy? And like, no, you're not crazy. It's not okay that your chief asked you about your sex life with your husband two times on video when it was recorded. And then he's trying to make you feel like you did something wrong, like being a rape victim almost. So, I mean, that's an extreme example, but I mean, I tell people like, no, this is not okay. Like you're being treated this way. They're not treating anybody else that way. And that's not okay. So I think, I think it really comes from, I own hundred percent feel as though I'm what I'm, I think that what I'm doing is a wellness tool because I know how much this kind of stuff causes worry in your life. It feels all consuming in your life. I know that because it did for me too. I felt like my world was crashing down around me when I was going through all that and literally caused me to change the trajectory of my per- professional life and in so many ways beyond that. And I know what that feels like. And so I know that I can help you get through it. And so that's why I have Lady Lawshaw. Like I knew I wanted to help cops some way. And now, and this is the way that I do that. And I say cops, cause that's, you know, the world I come from. But like I said, I, I, I really know it applies to all law enforcement. I speak at public safety conferences where there's all dispatchers. I have dispatchers call me and say, yeah, this is happening to me too. And I'm like, yeah, I know because it's the same world. I mean, corrections officers, I've talked to corrections officers. I've talked to, um, I think the only one I haven't talked to probation and parole, although I think there's a lot of overlap in that world also. So that's what I do. That's a very long, that gets you from the, it gets you, uh, that covers about the last 25 years to now. Well, it sounds like it's it's important work. I do want to ask you something, and maybe this is a little bit off the cuff, but so with the work that you're doing with with um, female officers in particular that are fighting for the respect that they deserve, when you read about stories like the female officer out of South Carolina that was you know involved with a number of men in the department, what does that do for the overall picture of women in law enforcement, in your opinion? Okay, yeah, that was awful. And I don't, 
and I and I, I am a member of several different Facebook groups. And honestly, I had missed that story. And I I went in some Facebook groups and I was hearing like people talking about it and they were frustrated. And, and even some women are like, you know, bashing that girl. I can't believe she did that to us. And then other people talking about, oh, it's ruined it for all of us. But I mean, I have, I mean, first, like the majority of my clients are men. So even though my firm's called Lady Law Shield, but overall, do I think that that is impacting like the sta- women standing in law enforcement? No. Do I think that it's discrediting women in law enforcement some way? No. Was that a big deal? And is it horrific? And obviously that poor girl, I hope she's getting all the, the mental help that she needs. Um, but overall, and, and this might sound kind of nuts, but not that I ever was in that situation. But can I understand how a woman in an all-male environment who wants so bad to get the guys around her to respect her as an officer or to like her? Now, I feel like my goal is like, I just wanted you to respect me as an operate, SWAT operator or as a narcotics investigator or as a somebody on patrol. But I mean, certainly I had guys want to hook up. Like that was never an option. And so, but I can totally get, and I kind of liken it to, I, I've always said this, like you get these guys the first time you arrest them and you can tell it's their first time arrested because they're freaking out. They want to throw up. They're just like a different color than normal. Or you, like, you know, it's just, they're so upset about it versus the people like now they're 20 crimes in and they just don't care anymore. It's just, you know, and so she obviously went down a path that she couldn't pull herself out of. But can I, but can I understand how somebody in that environment who is so, uh, you know, different than everyone else around them wants to be accepted so bad? 100% I can understand that. Now, obviously she took that too far, but overall, do I think that that's done anything to damage the like women standing within the profession? No, I do not. Um, because you start throwing that out me and I will start throwing out so many examples to you of the stupid stuff that guys do on a regular basis. But, but to be fair, women represent on average about 13% of law enforcement. So there's just not as many of them to do as many stupid things. There's more guys around to do stupid things, but I certainly hear all about it. So that's not exclusive. I have a client who is a young female that was discriminated against by an an older female in her department who would just regularly tell her, I don't want to work with females. I don't want to be around you because you're a female. Also, you're way too young. You shouldn't even be in this job, but I don't want to work with female. I mean, you can't do that. You cannot, you can fire somebody unless you're, if you're in an Atwell state, which is the majority of states in the U.S., including Texas, where I am, you can be fired for any reason. You could say, Phil, I hate your shirt. You're fired. Bridget, your earrings are ugly. You're fired. You literally could do that. Now you can't say because you're a girl and you're wearing earrings. You can't say because you're a white guy wearing that shirt or that's what a white guy wears or that's what a Jewish person wears or that's somebody that's old wears. You can't do that. If it's anything that falls within like a protected class and there's a list of that, I won't bore you with it. You can Google it, but you can be fired for any reason, but it can't be for a protected reason. So, but yes, there are a lot of, still a lot of stupid things that are being said and done in today's world, which blows my mind. What else can we talk about story-wise? Are there any cases that are of interest that you can share or? So going back to my stories from the road would be some things obviously that fall into line of what I do now, which to me, it's that 
you know, it's not like, you know, if you see something, say something, because I think in the context of like harassment, discrimination, retaliation, what I know is that most people just don't want to get wrapped involved. I don't want to be involved. Oh, I see that's happening. Oh, that's so wrong for that person. But I know that sergeant's vindictive or I know if I say something, that lieutenant will come after me. Or, you know, if I say something and it's a small department, like I know the chief, will, you know, he'll try and fire me too. Or he blackballs anybody that says anything bad about him. I get that there are a lot of times when something's going on and you don't feel like you can step in. But what I mean is, first of all, you can be protected by that, but not to say that you will you might still get fired, but you could do something about it. My point is like, so my examples are, and I'll just say this one and then I can go back to just straight up stories. But a guy was doing, I was in the narcotics unit and our unit wasn't really, we didn't have a lot of that many on the unit. We, we needed way more, but there was a lot of times where I was the only female on the, in the, um, also in the narcotics unit, not just the SWAT team. And the way that would work is we would do in my age, our our jurisdiction for our district attorney is like we would go in and buy drugs from the house and we had to have at least three buys from a house before they would give us a search warrant. I guess some jurisdictions, they let you have do it with one, but we had to have three. So I had done the undercover work. I went in, bought the drugs. I really can't remember if it's crack or cocaine, but it was one of those. And the guy I was buying it from the whole time I'm buying it, like right in the corner next to him was a rifle. Um, and so the whole time I'm buying it, like there's the weapon right there. Like if he suspected me at all, I was done. And so I bought three times from this house and then I end up writing the search warrant, getting the search warrant approved through the DA with the judge. So all my work, and then I'm on SWAT team. So then I'm, you know, then I, then we try switch hats and I put the SWAT team on because at our department, uh, the SWAT, the, the SWAT team would execute all the search warrants. I know in some agencies, if they're much bigger, the narcotics unit trains for that, but not us. Our The SWAT team would do that. So I would help with the SWAT. And what I mean by that is I was the only chick. So I got to drive the equipment van. They never let me do anything, um, even though we trained the same and I knew how to do all the same stuff. But, you know, and then we switched, we executed the search warrant. Uh, secured the house, SWAT leaves, narcotics stays, you know, it's my search warrant. So I'm the one category. We find the evidence, we catalog the evidence. I turn in all that stuff. So back up about two, three, four weeks on SWAT team. This was not that long after Columbine and anyone that's around long enough. I know sadly there's a lot of school shootings now, but at the time that wasn't Big, that didn't happen all the time. And one of the issues with Columbine is that the tactical team, where there was no team, they took, they stood, they stood by for too long outside. They didn't enter the school quick enough to save lives. Not necessarily taking out the shooter. It's just that people were dying inside and they didn't get them out. And so then after that, teams would train for active shooters totally different. They would train like, you know, go, 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 get in, get in, get in. I mean, you know, whatever team you have, go in. And our whole, actually, we had a great sheriff at the time. Our whole sheriff's office would train that way. They really gave us, a, we had a great sheriff. He would give us lots of training. So we were training for that. It was in the summertime in my town. It was at a high school. So the school was out, but it was in like the bad part of town. And my, like I said, my sergeant, who was also on SWAT, my sergeant in uh, narcotics was also on SWAT. Like he was always on me, always on me. I mean, I was always in trouble. I could do nothing right. Always getting written up always getting called in to talk about something, just, just never could let, leave me alone. I, we walk up. So we had this active shooter training, which I loved by the way, even though it was like the, not paint bullets, but the simulated round, whatever. But when they hit you, it still really hurt. Um, 
we would do it with that. So like trying to stimulate the, the stress of it. Anyway, we come out on a break. It's summertime in Florida, hot as hell, you know, and like we're sweating in all our gear. And I come out and I'm, I'm maybe I was one of the first ones out and I see my sergeant's car, trunk open, doors open. And he's a team leader on SWAT. So, I mean, he has an AR-15, they're all the rounds, Benelli shotgun, flashbangs, grenades. I mean, all the things. And his car is wide open while we're all in the school training in the hood. And I, my jaw literally fell open. I was looking around thinking, are you freaking kidding me? Like if I did that, you have got one time we came back from an exercise or a training or something and or a call. I don't remember. Again, I'm responsible for the van and I had to park the van in our secure compound. And it's one of those like bread. I don't know if you when I say bread van, but like a bread van and a side door and two back opening doors. Anyway, I forgot to lock one of the doors and I got, berated and written up. And I think I got like 30 days probation or something. I don't know for not locking a door in our secure launch sheriff's office compound. This guy leaves his whole car open for any thief or thug to steal and nobody says anything. So it ate me up for like a week or two. And I went to my SWAT commander, who was also the Lieutenant over narcotics and said, Hey, look, I generically gave the example. He's like, who was it? I was like, I'm not telling you who it was. And I was just real vague about how I described the car or anything. So it was not the point of who did it. I said, so, but as hit, but my point is, I'm not asking for better treatment. I'm just asking for equal treatment. He's like, what do you mean? I said, I'm just saying you would have eaten my, it's, you would have chewed me out up and down Sunday to Sunday, if that would have been me. And he said, don't make trouble for yourself where there's not any. And I said, I don't know what you mean. And he said, I'm just saying, don't make trouble for yourself when there's nothing. And I said, well, I kind of feel like I'm always in trouble anyway. So, okay, then bye. Well, okay. Fast forward to the search warrant, my undercover buy, my search warrant, all the things stands up in court. We arrest people. Fast forward two weeks later, the DAs that we worked with a lot for your search warrants and things invited some of us from the narcotics, you know, over to a party. It's like the DA people, the attorneys, whatever. And like a two, like a handful of cops while we were there, one of my guys on SWAT who also did like kind of a narcotics, but we had like an undercover narcotics side and like a uniform narcotics side. So we would work together a lot. He tells me, Oh, by the way, when we were doing your search warrant that night, um, all the guys were calling you a snitch behind your back. And I was like, wait, what? And he tells me the whole story. And I was like, okay, well, nice party. I got to go now. Bye. And I got in the car driving home crying so hard. I had to like pull over. I couldn't because I was crushed. Like two, you know, this is like almost three years into the SWAT team. I had competed on international SWAT team competitions with them. Literally, there's something called SWAT Roundup in Orlando. It's really cool. Anybody can go. It's in Orlando every year. It's the beginning of November. Teams from across the country, around the world come to this. I had to beat members of my own SWAT team to make the SWAT competition team. And then we go to the SWAT competition and we place in the top 20, top 15, top 10. I can't remember if our team ever made the top 10, but I know we were in the top 20. The last day is an obstacle course and we were in the top 10 with me on the obstacle course team we made in the top 10 out of 76, six men, six people on a team out of 76 teams we placed in the top 10 in the obstacle course. This is after I'd done all of that. And they're calling me a snitch behind my back on the, on the SWAT team. And 
I walked into my sheriff's office, my captain's office, he's now the sheriff, but I walked into my captain's office the next week and I said, that's it. I'm done. You know, I, I can't take it anymore. I want, I'm off. I want you to take me off narcotics, take me off of SWAT. And I, oh, by the way, I want to be on day shift. And he's like, you got it. Start like you can start tomorrow. And so that's one of my, that's one of my on the road stories. But, you know, I tell that because I feel like that's pretty extreme. And that was really hard. It was one of the hardest things I've ever gone through. But the reason why I tell that story is because I never reported the things that were happening to me. I wanted so bad for people to respect me as a, a deputy sheriff, as a, like I said, as an operator, as a narcotics investigator. And when I realized that it was just not going to happen, like nothing I did was going to convince them and that all I could have done or should have done would be to go say, hey, captain, I need you to tell you some things that's going on. And all I want you to do is make it stop. Like, I don't want to leave. I don't want to. And I, and I was in a really good situation knowing what I now know is that my captain would have really helped me. Would it have been more difficult with the guys? Maybe. But that, I would say that's one of my biggest, that's my only regret really of that whole situation. Because at this point, I don't regret it happened. I can help in a way that I think is so unique. Um, it ultimately led me to meeting my husband and my, I have three beautiful kids. So like, all, you know, all that happens for, I don't say it happened for a reason, but I mean, it happened and I am who I am because of it. But my biggest regret is that I never took the chance to report it. And, and also because what that means is they thought, well, everything we're doing is fine. You know, she didn't, nobody reported anything. So that anybody that came after me, including a female, they were going to do the same thing because nobody like, and I've had people, I've been on podcasts with like former chiefs and they say, oh, it's heartbreaking. I, it's heartbreaking that they didn't know or that you didn't tell anybody. Cause they say like, I, if, if I had known that was happening, I would have wanted to do something about it. And that I didn't do anything to bring it, prevent it from happening to anybody else. So that is, that's, that's a story. So as we get close to wrapping this up, tell me what advice you would give to a young female officer who may find themselves in a situation similar to yours. Well, I can say female, but I can also say that, I, I mean, I have a lot of male clients that are in a position where they are being just destroyed for the wrong reasons or, or tormented or harassed. And what I want people to know is do not take it because this job will is going to change who you are no matter what, just by nature, just, just by virtue of what the job is. And so the only thing you can do is to be proactive about how you protect yourself with that. Cause nobody's going to do it for you. None of my guys ever spoke up for me. Even the people who would come up to me later and say, sorry, Bridget, you got a raw deal. And I just got like, well, then why didn't you say something? Because nobody's going to do that. Not because they don't care about you. Not because they don't know it's wrong. It's just that people are like, I don't want to get involved. So my advice to you is do something. If anything that I'm saying resonates with you, then you know what I'm talking about. And because what I'm asking, what I'm saying is if you don't, you're giving pieces of yourself away that, that, that you shouldn't be giving away because the job's already taking it from you, but it's not necessary to give more than that. And so also, if you don't say something, you're going to be like in my position where it took me 13 to 15 years to get over that. Like I was just so crushed and so mad that I just didn't even know how to even talk about my law enforcement career, much less appreciate it or benefit from it. And so I don't want that to happen to you. I want you to be, my, my goal is to be able to help officers, first responders, firefighters, EMTs, dispatch, whatever, if you're dealing with this so that I can help solve the problem so that you can feel happier on a daily basis, which means you're going to do your job better, which means your, your, your community is going to benefit from it, but also you're happier at home. So my advice is 
to any of you. Do not just sit and take it. And if you need advice on that, you most certainly can call me and I will get you started on how you can do that. And I can do that in any state because I am licensed in four states. I've taken four bar exams. Um, Texas, I have to think about it. Texas, Louisiana, Florida, and New York. But also all of these cases are based on federal law. And so my first step with a lot of clients is just talking to them about what's happening giving and and validating what's happening for you and then telling you what your options are, giving you information and helping you figure out an action plan. Because a lot of times I think that might mean that might be all that you need because that's what all I wanted. And so my advice is do not sit on it. Find somebody who can give you the answers you need. And of course that could be me, but does not have to be me. Um, I connect with attorneys across the country. So if it can't be me, I can certainly connect you with somebody else or help you get there. Um, But it is, do not sit on it, say something, do something, because you are responsible for taking care of you. And I want you to be able to do that. Bridget, I think that's great advice. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and and for sharing this background. I, I hope that folks that are listening to this will get a little something out of it. I hope maybe in the future you'll come back and maybe share some cases with us or share some of the other work that you're doing. Um, but we'll also put your your uh, your link, your website in our show notes so anybody that needs to get in touch with you can easily do so. So Bridget, thank you for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. Yep. Yep. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you enjoy. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. Show notes are written by Jennifer Rowick. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this show, please visit storiesfromtheroadpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.